This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. The scripture this morning is Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Amphipolis, Apollonia, Amphipolis, say that seven times fast, Amphipolis, Apollonia. I had to do that this morning, and it still was terrible, so thank you, Lord, for reminding me how to say it. Um, I'm glad uh, to see you all again. If you uh, can remain in your Bibles in Acts 17, we're going to hang out there, uh, but I want you to um, have your Bibles ready, because we're going to turn to a couple other places this morning. Uh, last week, last Sunday, is uh, a day that will forever be etched in my memory. Um, if you guys hadn't heard, um, Catherine and my children were in a pretty major accident last Sunday. Uh, most of you know, but some of you don't. Um, I received a phone call about, I would say, 30 seconds before I was supposed to jump on stage here in the second service and do announcements. It was a f- number I didn't recognize, so I ignored it, and then it rang again. That's odd because uh, most people in 260 aerial code that I don't have their name don't call me because I'm, I'm not from around here. And it was two back to back. I was like, that's odd. So I answered it. And it was a stranger. And the stranger told me the first thing out of his mouth was, hi, um, I wanted to let you know your wife asked me to call you. She's been in an accident. Now, I've never had that experience, but your heart sinks to the floor. Thankfully, this person was very uh, kind and quickly let me know that my wife and my children were all okay. Um, my kids were out of the vehicle. My wife was still in the vehicle at the time, but it was on its side. And um, so I s- just started walking out the door. I saw Al Glock as an usher, and I said, Al, my wife's in an accident, I'm leaving. And I just walked out. And um, if you were in the second service, um, you'll know that Al informed Jamie. But there was, most people didn't know what was going on. But I, uh, I ran out the door, and um, Kelly Trageser was in the parking lot, and Barb Drogswald was in the parking lot. They said, Drew, what's going on? I said, my wife was in an accident. And they said, we'll go with you. And um, thankfully, they jumped in the car uh, and followed, Barb followed me and Kelly rode with me. And the whole time, I'm just 
racing through my brain. What am I going to see? What am I going to see? And I pulled up to the scene of the accident, and there it was, the, the van tipped on its side with my wife trapped inside. I immediately looked for my kids, and thankfully they're standing there safe with just some strangers that God sent to watch over my kids while I was there, wasn't there. And God had a, his hand of protection on my family. The accident happened almost at 11 o'clock on the dot, and by 1.30, Catherine was walking out of the hospital. But in those moments, you can't help but wonder what is going on in this world. So there's a lot of families that don't have that story, who had major accidents, and their families don't walk away whose loved ones die. We've seen in just recent weeks tragedies of people killed, innocent children killed. It feels like our culture is slipping away and and going to darkness. This month of June is hard for a lot of Christians as things that we don't believe that we believe are against what the Lord teaches in this word are thrown in our face and we're saying, what is going on? And we say, man, it looks like the world has been turned upside down. And you feel it. What's interesting though is if you look in Acts 17, let your eyes fall on verse 6. says, and when they could not find them, looking, these men looking for Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, that there is another King Jesus. See, 2,000 years ago, there was this perception that Christians were coming And they're spreading this message about this king named Jesus from Nazareth, this Jewish king. And that message to the world was turning their world upside down. And we would be, if we're honest, we know our Bibles, we'd look at that story and be like, okay, you're right about the King Jesus part. But we would say, he's not turning the world upside down, he's turning the world right side up. And I want to contend to you this morning that he is still doing that. He hasn't stopped turning the world right side up. And maybe, just maybe, we think our world is being turned upside down because we're looking at the wrong thing. Maybe our measuring stick as to what God is doing is the wrong measuring stick. Andrew Peterson, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, has a song, maybe you've heard on the radio. It's like his one hit, poor guy, he's awesome. This first line of the song says, do you feel the world is broken? And everybody responds, we do. And we stop there too often. But he gets to the chorus and he, he says, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? And the answer is yes. See, there's a king who's come and is coming again, and he's turning the world right side up. So this morning, I want to challenge you with this from our text, rejoice, Jesus is turning the world right side up. I want you to rejoice because Jesus is turning the world right side up. 
I want to give you four ways that we see King Jesus turning the world right set up. And this is what I want us to take away with us as, as our measuring rod, as, as where, where we can see the king turning the world the right side up. So let's go back to our text, Acts 17, again in verse 1. When, now when they had passed through, Amph- see, I can't even do it. Got all up on my head. Amphipolis, there we go. And Apollonia, there we go. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. The first way we see the King Jesus turning the world right side up is through the mission of the king. Through the mission of the king. So here we have Paul on the move again. If you remember, just last week he was in Philippi, right? And, And he was driven out of Philippi from persecution, but does he give up? No, he actually just keeps on traveling. So he goes to these next two cities, passes through these cities, and he comes to Thessalonica. Why does he go to Thessalonica? Because he has a plan. In fact, you see, there's a strategy and thoughtfulness to Paul. He's on mission. And Thessalonica was very intentional. See, Thessalonica at this time was the largest city in Macedonia, the region called Macedonia, which is in Greece. And this was a port city. It was a major trade route. And there was a large Jewish population here, which means Paul has some inroads. And he knew that if, if I can get the message here in this major hub of trade, that means if people get saved here, right, that message is going to spread throughout the world. He's very intentional where he chooses to go. But you also see this thoughtfulness and this plan with this. It says, he went into the synagogue and as was his custom. So he has a habit of when he goes into a city, he looks for a synagogue. Well, why would he do that? Well, Paul was a trained Pharisee. He was a Jewish teacher. So it would be very easy. And in fact, it was very common in synagogues to welcome guests, to share the word, to say, tell us something, guest. You're a trained Pharisee. Come into our synagogue. Teach us. He also knew that Jews understood the Old Testament deeply. So he he had less groundwork to cover. They had a a wealth of Bible knowledge that he already could tap into to share with them about the Messiah. And what were they all looking for? More than anything, they're looking for a Messiah. And he knew who it was. So he goes in and he has a message. And it's it's that message that was driving his mission. Did you know what the gospel literally means good news? You probably have all heard that. You're, you've studied the Bible a little bit. Gospel literally means good news. Well, what does news imply? The word news implies that there's a message, information that other people need to know. That's what news is. If it's not news, you don't share it. So there's a message The king has come to save his people from their sins, and they needed to know. Imagine this situation. Imagine if the IRS came out, this is bonkers, but just hang with me. If the IRS comes out and says, guess what? We're canceling income tax forever. No more income tax. That's good news, right? Like, man, that's a lot more money in my pocket. That sounds great. Now, imagine... Well, if that happened today, right, it would be all over social media, all the talking heads on TV would be telling it, it would be broadcast everywhere. They'd eventually send you a letter in the mail, like, 
two months after it happened. And you'd be like, I already know. And you'd throw it in the trash. But everybody would know. But imagine if there was no talking heads on TV. Imagine if there was social, no social media and that news needed to be announced. What would happen? If you knew, what would you do? You would tell everybody. You'd be calling your mom on the phone. You'd be writing letters. You'd be so excited. Guys, income tax has been canceled. Tell me if there's better news than this debt of your sin being canceled forevermore because of Jesus. You see why Paul was driven by this mission. It is the best news. He couldn't help but go tell people. And this was what Paul was called to do. He was called to be a missionary. But how about us? I mean, I don't think any of you are called to be missionaries. I know most of you. I know you have jobs that aren't missions. But are you called to do this? We have a mission. We do. But you, know what, you know what Paul's mission was not? Did you see Paul there trying to save Rome? Was that his goal? He wasn't trying to save Rome. He wasn't trying to, in the early church, wasn't trying to subversively overthrow Rome. I mean, our culture, you think about our culture, the things that make your stomach turn when you see it on your social media feed or you see it on TV, that would look family-friendly to Roman culture. Roman culture was horrible. It was wicked. From a Christian perspective, it was awful. And you know what the church wasn't trying to do? Overthrow it. Because their mission was deeper and bigger and wider. Now, Rome eventually would become Christian under Constantine, and that came with a whole host of problems, if you want to study your church history. But that wasn't the intent. And that was part of the problem is they thought Jesus being proclaiming king was a threat to Caesar. No, it was a threat to Caesar, but not in the way that they thought. They thought Christians were trying to overthrow Rome, but this is what their mission was. And you know this because we quote it all the time. The mission was, first of all, of making disciples. Jesus said as much in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As a result, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We have the mission of making disciples. We also have the mission of preaching the gospel. Paul writes this as much in Romans 10, 14 and 15. He says, how then will they call on him whom, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We have the mission of reconciliation. I love this text, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. How often do we stop there and not keep reading? 
your new creation. Therefore, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, that sounds like a lot. If you're like, man, that's a big mission. That's a lot. But there's a reason I'm calling this the mission of the king, not the mission of the church, because look at what it says. In verse 19, again, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world. And it says that he entrusted to us the message. Our mission is the message. If you're struggling this morning to wonder is the world being turned right side up? I want you to realize that God is on a mission and the mission has not slowed down. If anything, it is sped up. So I have to ask you this morning, what are you willing to give up for the mission? Are you aware what God's mission is and what it is not? Do you need to adjust your expectations? When you look at your life as a Christian and how you represent your king to the folks in your life, what would they say your mission is? We all live on mission in life. We all wake up in the morning. Something gets us out of bed. What would those in your life say it is? What would you say it is? Would people even know you have a mission? But listen, church, the king, Jesus, is on a mission, and this is reason to rejoice. So that's number one. Number two, fourth way that God through Christ is turning the world upside right is through the word of the king. Through the word of the king. Let's look back at uh, verse two, Acts 17, verse two. We'll keep going. I'm going to read this verse again. It says, and when, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. I'm calling this the word of the king because you see here in verse two, he reasoned with them from what? From scriptures. See, our king has spoken. We don't have a silent king. Our king has given a word. In fact, in John 1, John will tell us that the word is the king himself, Jesus. Jesus is the word. What's interesting is how he did it. He said he reasoned from the scriptures. Now, this is actually very common of how scripture was taught in the Jewish synagogues. It, their, their setup was not like ours. It wasn't necessarily somebody standing up in a pulpit preaching. We believe in preaching. Obviously, that's why we do it. But in the synagogue, this, was, this type of setup was more of a, a discourse, a, a dialogue. There's asking questions. There's kind of a debate going on. And this is very common in how they interacted in a synagogue. So when it says he's reasoned from the scriptures, this is what's going on. It's important to point out, too, because thinking, listen, church, thinking is important. In fact, vital. We need to be very careful of this anti-intellectualism that you can see sometimes in Christianity that, that pits you know, theology and thinking against true faith and belief. 
Now, we can't confuse right thinking and theology with belief. The Bible tells us that even the demons know that Jesus is the Christ, but they're not saved. So just because you know doesn't mean you believe, but you can't believe without having right knowledge. But this reasoning here that he's doing, I like to think of it as like thinking done in relationship. You're, you're dialoguing with somebody. You're helping them see the truth. In fact, it clarifies, Luke clarifies it in verse 3. It says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. That's what he means by reasoning, explaining and proving. So why is this all important? Why am I going through this? Well, we need to understand the word in our mission. We need to understand the word in our mission. Do people want to change? I mean, do you, let me just ask you, do you want to change? Are you happy with the way your life is right now? If you are, awesome. But most of us want to change. If we don't want to change us, we want other people to change. Fun, uh, here's a clue for you. Uh, you can't change other people. So if you think it's other people's problem, I'm sorry, you can't change them. But we want to change. We want to see our world change. But so often we, we try to do things to change the world, to even change ourselves through our own ideas, through human cunning, through cute and clever marketing schemes, through maybe we had more money, maybe if our armies were strong enough, maybe if we were smart enough. And so often we try to change things apart from the word. But the only thing that changes the world is the word of God. The word of our king. And this is what's perceived as foolish to the world. You mean you're just going to preach the word? You're going to go in every Sunday and just hold up the Bible and preach it, and that's going to change people? I mean, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Aren't they supposed to have like some exercise regimen? Aren't you going to have some like marketing strategy? I mean, don't you need to have this really thorough plan to how to help people change? I was like, yeah, my plan is to preach the word. Because it's the word that changes people. That's the mission. Changing the world is only done through changed hearts. And only the word can do this. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 puts it this way. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word in our mission. We also need the word in our lives. Jesus tells, you, tells us in Matthew 4, 4, that we can't live on bread alone. We need the word of God. Proverbs tells us that the word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I hear often, I just had a conversation this week about why is the word not central to so many of our lives? And I would say we make time for the things that are important to us. So I don't want you to hear you say is, is you need to go read the word more and if you don't feel guilty. What I want you to do is stop and think to yourself if the word is so important if it is the very bread of life and I make time for things that are important to me, why isn't the word important to me? That's the question you need to ask. And maybe, maybe the answer is you, you don't understand it or think you can't understand it. If that's the case, talk to us. We'll help you. 
Come to church every Sunday. We'll help you understand it. Maybe you think it seems overwhelming. I'll tell you it is a little bit. But you start. You start with one verse. You start with a passage. You get in it. And you will spend the rest of your life learning of how amazing, how deep the word is. Maybe you have wrong expectations of it. Maybe you've tried it and it didn't work for you. Which would just tell me you maybe need to go adjust your expectations of what the word's meant to do. But we need the word in our lives. And finally, we need the word in our message. We have a message that we preach which is the gospel, and it's not our ideas. Our job is to present the message that we find in Scripture. That's our mission, is to tell about Jesus, and Jesus is found in the Word, so we preach this. This needs to be central to our message. And you see this example throughout Scripture. Throughout scripture. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus? Jesus himself, he finds these disciples after he resurrected from the dead, and what did he do? He went back and showed how all the scriptures pointed to him. He preached the word, Jesus himself. He did it to Paul when Paul on the road to Damascus was saved. Paul's doing it here in Acts 17. You even go back to 500 years ago to the dawn of the Reformation. What did they stand on? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, the word. Therefore, the word should be what we go to as we share Christ with the world. I'm not sure if you're familiar with medieval culture and what life was like in medieval time, but it was an incredibly illiterate society. A majority of the people didn't know how to read. In fact, the small people who could read would have been like people, uh, nobles maybe, and uh, primarily your priests and your monks, your people in the religious order. They still know they needed to teach people. They wanted people to know the Bible. So what do they do? They would make these beautiful stained glass windows with pictures on it. They would put on plays in the public. And these plays were often stories from the Bible. Their whole service, you ever heard of liturgy? The liturgical service was, was built during the medieval period to help people understand the story of Scripture because they didn't know how to read now, over time, we know that this is a lot of this got lost and it got wrapped up in tradition, which brought on the Reformation. But there was intentionality behind this. And that is a result of this love of the word and teaching in a literate society of the word. That culture became Bible saturated. And like, like I said, a lot of them forgot that it was based on the Bible and it got wrapped up in tradition. But here's the, here's the reality. We have the Bible, more of, more of the Bible, more resources for, for the Bible available to us on our phones and our pockets in the history of the world. I mean, the amount of information about the Bible you can get like that is mind-blowing. And we are the most biblically illiterate culture. Even the church. A study was done by Arizona uh, Christian University back in 2021 that said 6% of Americans have what we would call a biblical worldview. Did you know how many Americans claim to be Christians right now? 65%. Now, I know our church is better than that. I believe it is. Much of evangelicalism is better than 6%, but it's not great. 
we need to consider how much of a people the word we really are. And just because you come to a church that has Bible as its middle name does not mean you are a person of the word. But we can rejoice because we have the word. We can rejoice because the word is going forward. You can rejoice because the word is being preached here. You can rejoice because the word comes from our king. He has not left us alone. He has given us a message. So if you're struggling to rejoice today, I want to ask you this. Are you a person of the word? Would others say you are a person of the word? Do do you take into consideration what God's word says when making decisions? Often we're struggling to find hope because we aren't feasting on the bread of life. How much does God's word influence your prayer life? How much do the promises of God found in his word influence your hope? What might need to change in your life so you can grow to love the word more? See, our king has given his word and will accomplish what is meant to, and this is reason to rejoice. So we can rejoice because God is turning the world upside right through this word. The third, we can rejoice because he's turning his world upside right through the love of the king. Let's look back at Acts 17 and read verse 2 one more time. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures about what? This. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He said it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? So what did Paul do? Most likely he started with the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament. In fact, for sure he did, because that's what the whole Old Testament is about. It's pointing to this coming king who's going to fix everything, who's going to take care of the sin problem. Now, we don't know necessarily what specific text that Paul used. We can speculate um, because he uses other texts from the Old Testament, other passages, but we don't know for sure, and that's okay. But we know that he did show why it was necessary. And it was necessary because of the rebellious sin of every human against their king. So for the king's subjects to be restored to a right relationship with their king, that sin had to be atoned for. His subjects can't stand before a holy God with sin. And this is what's amazing. The king, the Christ himself, paid for those sins. The king himself atoned for the sins of his own people. And he rose again. And then, so he's explaining all this. I want you to imagine this. This is the story he's explaining from the Old Testament. Then imagine sitting in that room and he looks up at you and he says, and I know who he is. It's this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah. I've met him. And you can too. That's the news. That's the gospel. And I'm calling this through the love of the king. Because we all know that it's love that propelled the king to suffer and rise again. It was love that propelled the king to suffer and rise again. I want you to turn in your uh, Bibles to Romans chapter 5. 
Romans chapter 5. Verse 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his what, church? Love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also what? Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have now received reconciliation. It's the love of the king. That love calls for two responses from us. The first is love in our message. So when we share the gospel, and this is very common for churches like ours, for people like us who we have a culture and church, church culture that likes to downplay sin. So when we preach the gospel, we're like, okay, we got to make sure people know that they're sinners and they're sinners before a holy God. And the only way to be made right with God is by by confessing our sin and understanding that his wrath is coming on us and that Christ has paid the penalty for that wrath. And those things are very, very good things. We have to preach those. But how often in your message do you preach the motive and heart of God behind all of that? How often do you preach that God did that all because of love? I didn't say that. Paul said it. Look at verse 8 again in Romans. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, it wasn't after we got saved that God's like, all right, okay, your sin's cleared. Jesus paid for the sin. Okay, now I'm going to love you. It was while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us. And I think that sometimes we can be afraid of overemphasizing the love of God because we feel like maybe we're downplaying sin or, or because we don't want to be like bumper sticker Christians, like love wins or God is loving. Like, oh, that's so, that's all the CCM music out there from the 90s. All, you don't want to do that. Or maybe it's we're afraid of being associated with the whole love is love and our culture is all about love. So we're so afraid to talk about God's love. But Paul wasn't afraid to talk about it. In two verses, he says, God loves us and his wrath was upon us. They aren't opposite. And let me ask, do you think most people are really struggling thinking that the God Christians believe is too loving? Is that what you think most people think? God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need love in our message. We also need love in our living. See, the love of the king for us and for sinners should propel us to love like the king. See, everyone who is not yet saved is just like you were before you were saved. Maybe you don't remember because you were young, but we all fall short of the glory of God. We all were rebels. And we need to love them like God loved us. See, unbelievers, yes, they are sinners, but they're also sufferers. 
Every sinner is also a sufferer. They're guilty of the sin they commit, but they're also suffering under the sins they commit. And that should lead us to compassion and empathy. We have to meet people where they are, be willing to lay down our life for others like Christ. This is the story of Paul. If you trace Paul's life throughout the book of Acts, you'll see him reliving this gospel message. You'll see how he is persecuted and he's beaten and then he's resurrected, not literally resurrected, but he's restored to life. And what does he do? He goes on and carries this message forward. And he says in his own letters, I'm bearing the burden of Christ. I'm bearing Christ's suffering in my own body because he's living it. And how many Christians can say, I'm bearing the suffering of Christ? Are you living in a way that, that would produce suffering for Christ? This is the story of missionaries and martyrs. But it also should be the story of us ordinary Christians. My wife has a, a little poster, a framed uh, verse in our kitchen. And it just says, live a quiet life in the frame. It actually comes from 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4. Which is interesting because where's Paul right now in this situation? Thessalonica. And look what he writes to the Thessalonians. Before you're like, okay, Drew, so we got to go do this crazy living to be able to do all this. No, look what he says. In verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And how do they do that? And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Live a quiet life. Go about your business. You can live sacrificially for others in your day-to-day -day life. This is ordinary Christianity. This is an extraordinary Christianity. All the martyrs, I would bet you a majority of the martyrs throughout Christian history, you know what they're probably doing? Living an ordinary life. But it was the love of God that led them to do that, and the love for people. The laying down of your life is done in the ordinary affairs of your life every day. And that's where God is moving. That is where God is working. We can rejoice. So I must ask you, is God's love for you the heart of the gospel message you preach to yourself? And is it the heart of the gospel message you share with others? And does God's love compel you to love others like Jesus? See, our king is a loving, saving king, and that is a reason to rejoice. Last, and we'll move through this one pretty quickly, is through courage in the king. We have through the mission of the king, through the word of the king, through the love of the king, and finally through courage in the king. Luke writes, in verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, surprise, surprise, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. You see two responses to this message of a coming king. You have some that believe. This is really cool because I think at least for me, maybe you're not like me, but I tend to like, okay, if I preach the gospel, I doubt people are going to believe. 
I mean, I don't see people getting saved. It doesn't seem likely. So like, I, I tend to question, like, does this message really save people? But this text tells us, guess what? The gospel is preached and people do actually believe. You share the word, you preach the gospel, people will come to faith. And it says some Jews, but many devout Greeks and leading women. So you have prosperous people, people higher up in this community getting saved. But there's also some disbelief. Jealousy. So jealous that they get angry. An anger that leads to persecution. We've talked a lot about persecution here, so I don't want to go too deep into that. There's a reason I'm calling this through courage in the king. Because you see, persecution followed Paul wherever he went. Have you noticed that theme? That's why it keeps coming up, because it seems like everywhere Paul goes, there's persecution that follows. But does that stop him? He keeps going. It should be clear to Paul at this point what's likely going to happen, but he walks into that city knowing what's going to happen. That takes courage. Why? Because he knows the king. He knows the gospel. You also see in verse 6, we looked at that at the beginning of our message, the, the reputation of Christianity is not great. He's saying these people are turning the world upside down. Yeah, who believed? Jason and all these leading people believed. That takes courage. You have an entire culture that's going against you, and it takes courage to believe. Verse 6, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. And jump down to verse 8. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They didn't back down. They didn't run. The city came and grabbed them, and they stood there, and they took it. And you stand in courage because, and we can rejoice, because we can stand in courage. But standing in courage is not denouncing all these sinful acts of the culture. They didn't get up there and stand on a podium. Jason would say, all you wicked people of uh, Thessalonica, you're following these Roman customs and they're terrible and you need a change. They didn't make Facebook posts or tweets calling out all the terrible things of their culture. There was no picket signs protesting the terrible things of their culture. I'm not saying there's not a place for these things sometimes, but what were they most interested in? Preaching the gospel, changing hearts. Sharing the good news of a saving king because they knew that God was turning the world right side up, one heart at a time. Building relationships with people. So let me ask you, this is a little thought experiment. What is, what is harder or more courageous? Changing your social media profile picture to some cause you're excited about or building a relationship with a neighbor or coworker who doesn't know Christ. One of those takes courage. One of them is really easy. And how do we do that? How can we do that? Because our king is turning the world right side up. 
He's coming again soon in judgment to turn the world right side up around us, but he's turning hearts right side up right now. People in your life, your own heart. Listen, church, this is serious. God has sheep who are not yet part of his flock that he intends to save. And he wants to use you and me and this church to reach them. See, we're emissaries of this king, this saving king who died for his people and rose again. We are his emissaries now. That's why we're here. And no matter what happens to us, whether persecution or safety and prosperity, we can take courage because our king has come, is coming again, and we are safe in him. And so we can rejoice. So where do you need courage to stand today? What truths about your king give you courage to stand? And how can you remind yourself of those truths? See, understand the temptation today to be fearful, anxious, or even despair at the state of the world. From mass shootings to wars and rumors of wars, the 525 gas, Pride Month increased violence towards pro-life advocates, And that's just the past few weeks. We could go on and on. There's there's legitimate reasons to feel anxious. It's not the way things are supposed to be. But all this is a fallout from the fall. All this is a result of mankind's rebellion against God, but he did not leave us there. And we should mourn sin. We should mourn wickedness, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. I just heard uh, one of my favorite songs this morning. It's a really old song. Some of you may remember it. It's called Be Glad. You should check it out by an acapella group called Glad, nonetheless. But I was listening to it this morning as I was getting ready to come in. And I was reminded of these lines, uh, just so powerful. And it starts out this way. It says in these, by the way, the song was written back in like the early 80s, probably before I was born, uh, but still applicable. This is what's amazing. It says, in these days of confused situations... In this night of a restless remorse, when the heart and the soul of a nation lay wounded and cold as a corpse, from the grave of the innocent Adam comes a song bringing joy to the sad. Oh, your cry has been heard and the ransom has been paid up in full. Be glad. Church, we can rejoice this morning because Jesus is our saving king. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you that in these days of confused situations, these nights of restless remorse where we're broken, we're distraught, we struggle with fear and anxiety, we mourn so much that seems to be lost and broken that In the midst of it, we can rejoice because you have sent your son, our king, to turn the world right side up. And we need to be reminded of that, that he is still working. He's still doing that one heart at a time. I pray that that would be our measuring rod, that that would be what we look to to remind ourselves of hope and surety. Our king died and rose again for our sins, and we need that today and tomorrow, and our world needs that. Our friends, our family, our neighbors, help us to be courageous, 
to stand in that, to preach that and share that and love others because of that. And it's the name of our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.